Thanks, Cameron. I think, um, I think that was such a timely just word and prayer. I got here this morning, and I was sitting down, and I was just like, I just need to take some time myself to just like try and be here, try and be present. I was, I was, that, that's where I, my heart is and was this morning. So I, I got here, and I was like, there's so many things I could be thinking about, uh, things that... Uh, have happened, things that are going to happen, things that uh, I want to be doing, things I can't do. There's, you know, it's, it's, it's the Christmas season. There's so many things that are kind of happening, everything from Christmas programs to church events to family get-togethers, multiple family get-togethers, right? Um, and I was just having a hard time being present. And, and, and one of the things that, like, was, was hindering me from being present was things that I was afraid of things that I was fearful of, things that could happen, things that might happen, things that I don't have any control over. Um, it's a good sermon example. Um, no, we, so, um, but like, we, you know, so like all of these things, these fears, you know, are, are things that perhaps will draw us out of the moment. And so, like, and, and, and appropriately enough, like, that's what we're talking about today, is what we've been talking about for the last couple weeks, uh, as we've been talking about in our sermon series, Fear Not. We've been talking about sort of some core fears that we all experience as human beings, and that we all know and have, and we've been looking at them through the lens of the Christmas story of looking at the birth of Jesus, and we find often that these messengers of Jesus come to these people who experience these fears, and then these messengers, these angels say, fear not, do not be afraid, for I bring you good news. And so we've been going through each of those, and today we're going to be talking about the fear of being insignificant, right? And it's not a word that we use, we don't use significance a ton. Um, but it, or insignificance, but like it's it's something that we all intrinsically know and hunger for and look for, and so um, what we find is that insignificance is something that can be a fear. And when I was first thinking about this topic, uh, the first thing that pops into my mind uh, is a Calvin and Hobbes comic because I love Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson. Um, and so there is this comic, and it pops up, and Calvin is out, and he's standing out underneath the stars, and he's gazing up, and he's looking up, and he's like, I'm significant, right? And then he's like, cried the dust speck, right? He kind of, like, like, he has this moment where he kind of wants to try and say that he's significant, but in the midst of the vastness of the universe, as he gazes up into it, he, he realizes that he's He's but a, a little tiny speck on a little tiny blue marble that's moving through space, which is getting bigger. You know, like space is infinite, but it's getting bigger somehow. Um, like, like that's a perspective shift, right? And, he, and, he's, and he's feeling this, this, this desire to want to be significant. And then I was thinking more about significance and like specifically if there's any connection to, like, the Christmas season. And I thought of, like, the Christmas classic movie. Like, I'm sure many of you have seen it. Um, oh, it just 
The Wonderful Life. It's a good thing I remembered that. All right, it's, you know, <laughs> that was my sermon illustration right there. Um, <laughs> no, it's a wonderful life, right? And in a lot of ways, this movie, this classic movie that, you know, they show every year uh, with George Bailey and, you know, he's got, you know, and everything, um, is all about this kind of answering this question, but in a different way of saying, you know, he, he's a man who's struggling and he, he has a difficult life and he's in a a hard spot, and he comes to a bridge, and he wishes, he's thinking about taking his own life, and he wishes that he had never existed. And then an angel comes along and shows him a version of the world in which he had never lived, right? And he, and he, and he finds that, oh, like, my actions, my presence, my interaction, my relationship with people was significant, right? And so, like, there's two just even simple examples of popular culture dealing with this question of significance and answering them in different ways. And we could spend a long time talking about this topic, but I want to just kind of, we're not going to exhaust the answers today, but I want to get to the core of it, right? I want to get to the the day in, day out where our heart lives in regard to this question of significance, and so the, the thing is, is, is we're, what we're going to be digging into is, is there an answer to the fear of being insignificant? Is there truly a way that we can kind of fend off this fear? If this fear of it being insignificant is something that's coming at me, can I, can, is there a way to fend it off? Is there a way to kind of answer or contend with it? And first, we need to look, I think, at the ways that we naturally answer this question. Like, if we're just left to our own devices, how do I normally answer that question? How does my heart tend to go to find significance? And I think there's three primary ways in which we do that. The first way is that, um, well, first to say that these are not mine. Uh, Henry Nowen, if you're familiar with that writer and author, he came up with these. Um, But there's three ways in which we tend to find significance. The first is to say that I am what I do or how well I do it. The second is to say, I am what others think of me. And then the third and final one is, I am what I can have and or experience. More kind of about like possession and freedom. And these are three categories which like, I think we all run into at different points, right? And and, and they're not all bad things, right? Like we should be doing things and we should do them well. And they make up part of our identity, But we begin to run into a problem when we can begin to draw an equal sign between my job title and my performance and my self-value, my worth, who I am, right? And so we're beginning, when we get into that place where these become idols, to put a biblical term on it, when we get into a place where these become uh, a defining of who we are at 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 like a superior at like the top level. It doesn't matter what else is going on. If, if, if other people don't like me, well, then I'm, I'm not someone worth liking, right? We all, like, I think all of us can go through these three categories, but we probably all have one or two that we maybe kind of tend towards. For me, the one that I tend towards is number one. I am what I do or how well I do it. I mean, that's just like, for me... Like, if I did a good job on a thing, it mm, means, means I'm good, you know? I, I'm, I'm doing great. That means I'm, I'm worthy of praise. It means I'm uh, 
It means I have self-value and self-worth. But if I, if I didn't do well on something, or I, I, I didn't do it right, well, well, then where does my self-worth go? It goes down into the gutter. I begin to say that I'm a failure, right? Um, this was something that, was, that the Lord checked my heart on pretty severely. Um, it's actually just a year ago, you know, I, you know, I got hired here back in August, <laughs> it was like August, July, like, feels like a long time ago, but it was just August. Um, so a year ago, I was in Chicago, and a year ago today, I was at a church service where we closed the church, and I was a pastor there, and I had been part of the community member. I'd been there for, like, I mean, I had been involved there for, like, five years. I had been a pastor for two and a half, and we had to close the church for good. And I had to leave Chicago, and I had to go back to my family, and I was like, I'm not a, I'm not a pastor anymore. You know? like, what does it mean that like, we had to close the church? Did I fail? Am I a failure? It was something that the Lord was checking my heart on in that season, of just saying, no, Luke, like, you're not defined by what you do or how well you do it. The story of that church is bigger than you. It doesn't have to do with, I've got other plans for you and for those people and for that church. And, and it's not all about you. Surprise. Um, you know, but it was a heart check. And it was a difficult season of looking for a job and, 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 and wrestling with the Lord and saying, Lord, I don't want to find my identity in what I do or how will I do it. I want to find my identity in you. Right? And so for me, that's something I've had to wrestle with season in and season out over and over in different contexts. The second one, right? I am what others think about me. I think this one's a very common one. I, I can feel this one, right? Like um, when somebody comes up and they've got hard feedback, right? Uh, or maybe somebody comes and they're just like, oh, like, why, why, are, you, why are you wearing that? That's, that's not very flattering. Um, <laughs> I don't know if people actually say that. Um, I don't think so. I don't think people are actually that mean most of the time. Um, <laughs> it happens, right? Um, you know, but like other people, like, oh, look, well, why did that person not like say hi to me? Or like, why did they like snub me there a little bit? Right? Like, what others think and feel about me can begin to determine my own self worth. Right? I think we've all felt that to degree. There's always some people that we care about, that we care about their opinions more than others. But when it goes into a degree into which everybody, I need everybody to like me, I need everybody to approve of me, I need everybody to think that I'm good or I'm doing a good job, we're getting into a place where we're giving the control of our self-worth and self-definition to a mass crowd. And that crowd's even bigger now because of the online world and social media and all of that. And then what about the last one? I am what I have or what I can experience, right? Can kind of get us into a, into a mode of, well, you know, what can I, what can I do? What, how, you know, how can I create more security for myself or create more freedom for myself to do the things that I want? And that kind of mindset of constantly looking for self-fulfillment and self-freedom is a hamster wheel. It's, it's, you're never going to find, because there's always going to be a next thing, 
right? Or there's always going to be, whatever you have now is going to be outdated in five years anyways, or six months, you know, and so you're going to need the next thing. And, and, it, and it never satisfies, and you're operating in a scarcity mindset, and you're always afraid that anytime you turn the corner, you could lose the things that you've worked so hard to get, or the freedom that you've gotten, or worked so hard to maintain. And so if these are the three things that we kind of tend to in our own human nature or in the way of the world to try and find significance, to prop up our own self-worth and self-definition, what is the other option? Because these don't seem all that great to me. They seem to leave us in a place of wanting more, seem to leave us in a place where... um, We're at the whim of others and circumstances. We don't have control over these. We perhaps feel like we have control over them, but we don't. And they put us in a place where we're constantly running and we're constantly in danger of becoming and being self-defined by failure, by loss, by just the thoughts and words of others. So to answer this question today, I want to look at Luke chapter 2. So if you want to, you can open up your Bibles. We're going to be looking at the story of Jesus and his birth. But not specifically, we're going to be looking, we're kind of going to be zooming out from Jesus in the manger, and we're going to be looking at what's happening alongside, just a little bit away from the manger. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. All right. Luke 2, starting in verse 8. And it says that, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. All right. Um, Before we go any farther, right? Like shepherds, when we think about shepherds, it's something that like, one, we don't have any experience with. Like I don't think anyone here has the job shepherd. Nope? Okay. Like, um, so, so, you know, like, Shepherding is not like a common occupation anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, but like it's not your full-time gig. <laughs> you're, you're not living out in the field like these guys were. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's not something that we have like a ton of experience with. It pops up in the Bible all of the time, right? Like Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. There's Psalms about being shepherds and God being described as a shepherd. But like, what is like a shepherd? And what did people like think about shepherds? And, and even here's the better question. What is the significance of a shepherd at the time that Jesus was born? What Did they have any sort of significance, if we were to kind of walk through those three things of I am what I do, I am what others think of me, I am what I can have or experience, how would the shepherds have answered those questions? Well, let's talk about it. So let's think about it. Shepherds. So I am what I do. Well, I mean, they take care of smelly animals. And, and, and they kind of live on the outskirts of society. And, and it, it, you know, I don't think that like a ton of kids were growing up and saying, I want to be a shepherd when I grow up. Like, I don't think that was like the most desirable occupation that kids aspired towards. It just wasn't. And so it's not something that, I also don't think that the on-job training was all that complicated either. Like, you know, just move them from here and make sure they don't go anywhere. Like, you know, okay, good. 
Um, and so, so, so when it comes to defining themselves by what they do, well, it doesn't leave them very high. What, what about, I am what others think about me? Well, if we look, were to look at writings that were made during the time and people, other records we have about what people thought about shepherds at the time of Jesus' birth, nobody really liked them all that much. They were really rather looked down upon, and they were assumed to kind of be sort of less than. It was kind of a job that, if, if you were taking this job of being a shepherd, it was probably because you didn't get a job doing other things, right? And so they kind of had this assumption that, well, these are kind of the lowest, they're kind of like the, the least best workers, they're not very trustworthy. And so they, um, so they, people didn't think highly of them. Oh, you're a shepherd, right? Well, then, and then what, what about the question of, I am what I have or can experience? Well, like, I mean, they don't have a ton with them. Like, the passage literally says that they were living out in the fields with the sheep. This means that it was probably warm out and it was like grazing season. And so they would just live with the sheep while they were grazing and from where they went to one place to the next. And they probably didn't own the sheep that they were shepherding. Like most likely someone much more wealthier owned the flock of sheep that they were in charge of watching. And so they weren't even their own sheep. So what... So we find, when we kind of go through this sort of way of self-definition and significance, we find that these shepherds didn't have a whole lot to hold on to. That they didn't bear a significant role, that they weren't people that people looked up to, but rather they looked down at. And these are the people that the story begins with here in verse 8. And so these insignificant shepherds are out watching their flocks by night. And in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause you great joy, that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And then suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom His favor rests. So, we live in a world of, um, like, social media birth announcements and, like, um, gender reveals. Like, if you think, that's, like, a big deal, right? Think rather about, like, the importance that an ancient culture put on the announcement of a king, right? When, um, when a king was born, right, they would make this big proclamation about who this child was and, and who was bearing and what family he belonged to and what his future was going to be and what he was, and what he was and they'd make this big decree and, and they would make sure that everybody knows it. And here we find that in a stable placed into an animal's feeding trough, 
the God of the universe, the God who created all things, who sustains all things, who knows all things, has come and has been born in human flesh. And the very first people who get to know about it, besides his parents, are some shepherds on a hillside outside the city. Just some, some guys just watching some sheep. And, and it's, not just like, it's not just like one angel shows up and kind of just like, hey, just so you know, like this one angel shows up and then it's like heaven overflows with glory and joy as a multitude of angels just erupt and surround them and break out into this chorus of praise announcing that God has come to earth. And like, like to them, to people like us, people of no account, someone whose their name wouldn't have been remembered more than a generation or two. And the angels say, it is important. You are the ones we've come to tell this news to. We're not going and we're not announcing it to the other kings. We're not announcing it to people who are influencers, who have followers. We're not announcing it to the people of significance by your own standards. But we're coming and we're announcing it and proclaiming it to you. This good news. This joy. And that is just a... I don't know. It just blows my mind. It shows how the kingdom of God takes our own kingdoms that we build and then just flips it upside down. We love to create hierarchy and structure and talk about power and control and who has what and influence. But God's like, no, I'm going to show you that my kingdom is backwards from what you would think. And so God comes and makes this announcement to these shepherds. And let's see what these shepherds do now in response. How do they respond to this news? In verse 15, it says that when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem. Let us see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off, right? They didn't just wait around. They didn't talk about it for a long time. They were just like, let's just go now. And they head off. They hurried off. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds, notice it mentions their occupation again, what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in their heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. And so, perhaps the most significant, singular event in the entire universe is told to perhaps the most insignificant group of shepherds, who then become the first heralds of the good news to everyone. And they begin to go around and go from person to person saying, the Lord of the universe, our Savior, the Messiah, Emmanuel has been born. God is among us. 
These people who were insignificant by all accounts of anyone who were to look at them have now become the bearers of the most significant news that they could ever have. And that is just a continual turning upside down of our worldly thoughts and kingdoms. And so here, here's the main idea. This is the main thing I would love for you to take away and to hold into your heart. The thing that I hope transforms us. And it's this, that your significance, your self-worth, is not determined by who you are, but it is rather determined by whose you are. Right? It's not something that's determined by how successful you are or who your parents are or who you know or what you can have or what you can experience or what others think about you. It's determined by who you belong to. It's determined by God who has called you a son or a daughter. Right? Like, how does that change the way that we think about those three ways of defining ourselves? I am what I do. I am what others think of me. I am what I can have. Right? I am what I do. Well, if, if I'm defined by God rather than what I, I am what I do, well, that just changes everything. Because I'm no longer in a position in which I need to go about doing things in order to build up my own self-worth, to prove myself. Rather, I'm free. Rather, I've been given the freedom to do things, not to prove myself, but for the things themselves, or rather, for someone else. Because I'm no longer defined by my own works, I'm defined by the works of Christ on the cross. I'm defined by his, his sacrifice and by His works, not by my own. I was thinking of another Christmas classic, A Christmas Carol, right? Scrooge and the, and the ghosts and all of that. Um, and, and, like, and, 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 you know, when Scrooge is visited by his dead, the ghost of his dead partner, Marley, and he comes and says, Scrooge, I've got all these chains on me, you know. Um, and, and you'll have chains like these too because of all the things you're doing, right? It's a fun story, right? And then Scrooge learns his lesson by the end of the, of the story, and he starts to be a nice guy and starts doing nicer things so that he can get rid of his chains. What's well, a nice story, but that's not really how this works. It's not the gospel for sure. You don't become a Christian in order to do good things, to get rid of your chains, but rather God comes up to you and he says, these chains are removed from you. You're no longer defined by your past or by what you do or the mistakes that you've had or what people have done to you, but you are rather defined by me as a son or a daughter and now you are free to do good things, to do the works that I prepared for you, not for yourself, not for self-definition, but for me. You're free to do them even for their own enjoyment and expression. There's a freedom that comes first. We don't do things so that we can have freedom. We experience freedom so that we can do those things. And then think about, I am what, I am what others think about me. No, you're not what others think about you. You are what God calls you, right? God calls you a son. God calls you a daughter. 
God calls you beloved. God calls you redeemed. Calls you forgiven. Restored. Those are the things that God speaks over you and calls you. He's not calling you by your old name. He's saying you have been given new life. You are a new creation. That is by what you are defined, not by what others would say or think of you, but what God has called you. And then at last, I am what I have or can experience. And, and, and when we, we are given in the Bible, it says that those who have faith in Jesus Christ, who follow God, will have eternal life. Right? Eternal life. That's like a thing that we hear a lot about in the Bible and we think about. And I think we have kind of a broken way of thinking about eternal life. I think the way I grew up thinking about eternal life was in the category of saying, well, eternal life starts when I'm dead. That's like when eternal life starts. What if, what if it started now? Right? Like, like when we're in our own sort of world, right, when we're thinking about our own life, about who, what I am, what I do, and what others think of me, and what I can have, we're in this small little box here. Right? I'm thinking about these things that I think I can have control over. And this is the kingdom and the story that I'm writing and building here. But when God comes and changes our lives, when we're given eternal life, that perspective is blown out of the water. Right? Because now eternal life starts now and will continue on forever. That the life I'm living here and now is just the beginning part of my time with God in the future when God will redeem all things and make all things right and when the brokenness of this world will be restored. Eternal life is something we get to live into now. I'm not building a kingdom for myself. I'm not building a kingdom for my family. I'm building the kingdom of God. And that is an absolute game changer as far as our perspective, as what our goals are set, of how we live our lives. When we think about this fear of, of insignificance, I'm just, I'm shocked by God's response to it. Because God's response to this, right? We think about Jesus, God made visible. And we are to think about how did Jesus interact with insignificance? Well, he embraced it, right? What's more insignificant than being born to two young parents who were most likely not thought of well in their community anymore or by their parents? born in a stable, placed in a feeding trough in a manger, living in obscurity as a carpenter, in a small little town. What's more insignificant than that? When Jesus came and he rode into Jerusalem, the capital, the place where the temple was, Jesus didn't come riding in on a white stallion. He came riding in on a donkey. We find that Jesus at every t- moment, right? The night before his arrest and his crucifixion, we don't find him sitting at the table and lecturing his, his disciples and telling them like how great he is and how they ought to be you know, more appreciative of him. He's rather taking and he's kneeling and he's washing their feet. 
Jesus at every turn embraced the attitude of being a humble servant and sought not significance, but rather insignificance. He brought with him humility. And it was in doing that that God's glory was made more visible. Because what's more glorifying, what's more glorious if Jesus had come in and rode in on a white stallion and proclaimed himself? Or is it more glorious that he is deserving of all of that and more, but he was willing to serve people like you and me? And his glory expands in that. See, we have a God who is not far from us. I think sometimes we think of God as sitting on this high mountain. And we think that we've got to do something to get up there. We've got to attain enlightenment. We've got to do so many things. We've got to read the right books, take the right classes. And once I do those things, I'll get up to where God is. And in that's I'll be holy, I'll be spiritual, I'll be set right. But that's not the God that we worship. That might be the God of just about every other religion. But it's not who we are here worshiping today. It's not the God who came and lived and was here among us. We have a God who came down off the mountain. We have a God who has come as close to us as flesh and bone. We have a God who added to himself weakness, humility, humbleness. We have a God who knows what it is to know sorrow, to know pain, to be physical. To this day, when we meet Christ, Christ still will have a body like yours and mine. Right? We have a God who has come near to us so that we might be freed. So that we might not be controlled by fear. And, and it's, it's not some sort of loud trumpet, but it's rather in the cry of a newborn baby that we find that God is near us, that our insignificance, our fears are taken away. And my question for us is, what if we were to become like the shepherds in response to this news? They came and saw a baby. They came and were told of the good news, the good news we've talked about this morning, what did they do? Well, they dropped their staffs. And they said, we're going to go about and we're going to sing, we're going to worship and praise the Lord, and we're going to tell everyone about it. What if that were to become a defining part of us, that we're not defined by these things we want to prop our own self-esteem up, but rather we're defined by God in His mission, by His purpose, by His good news, and by who He has said we are. So, in that, I think we can find freedom from this fear of insignificance. And I think in Christ, we also find a freedom, not just from insignificance, but from every other fear we've been talking about. And, and, and I say freedom because I, I truly do mean freedom. I think, I think about fear. Like if we think about the nature of fear. If you've ever heard of, you know, the... the uh, fight, flight, or freeze response, 
right? Like when you're encountering danger, your adrenaline goes up and you're like, I'm either going to fight, I'm going to run away, or I'm just going to freeze because my body can't figure out what to do. It's stuck somewhere in between. And, and, and it's that way with like physical danger, but like it can even be that own way, like just other dangers, other things that we're afraid of exert control on how we behave and how we live our lives. We can think about my fear of heights. The kid, I didn't like heights, right? Which meant I didn't go on things that were high, like roller coasters, right? And even if I did go on a roller coaster, like it wasn't an enjoyable experience, right? So it like, it controlled my life. It, it was, it influenced me, that fear. But what about, you know, like fear of heights? You're like, all right, yeah, Luke, you like don't have to get on a ladder for your job. Um, but, but what about like my fear of rejection? Well, that, that, that can impact my life. That can control how I interact with someone. Am I truly being and sharing my full thoughts? Am I being myself? Am I avoiding conflict because I don't want to be rejected? What about fear of loss? What about the fear of security, right? Like, I, I want to protect and to hold on to and exert control over things because I'm afraid I'm going to lose it all. What about like the fear of betrayal? And so we hold and we stay back from people because we don't want to be hurt again. We can name those fears that rest in our hearts and we can identify how they impact our lives and how they affect our relationships. They affect our dreams. They affect the things that we do. They affect the things that we hope for. So fear has this way of creeping in and reaching out tendrils and roots and exerting its own control on our lives. And I think this is what we find to be true when we come to faith with Christ and Jesus, is that our fears are not erased. Our fears don't disappear, but rather that we find that Jesus appears next to us, among us, with us. And that makes all the difference. That Christ is present with us, is present with you, with me, that his Holy Spirit is here and among us. That fear no longer needs to control me, but rather Christ controls me. And his peace, his power, he controls me. So today we want to offer up some time, some reflection time to think about and interact with this idea of surrendering our fears to Jesus. And so, at the end of each of your guys' pews on the outside, there are these cards uh, and there are these pens that we've made available. Go ahead and grab those and pass those to your neighbor. And Oh, okay. I don't know what you're saying. They're brand new pens, so... So you might have to, oh, you might have to pull like a little plastic pen that's uh, like, like cover on him, like the practicalities of using a pen. So like they're brand new, so you might have to click them and, and take these little balls off of them or something so that you can write on them. You know, you also might have to, you know. But anyways, the reason we have the cards and the pens, right, um, is so that you can take a moment and maybe there's a fear that has come up to your mind or you felt sitting on your heart and mind today or at some point in this 
sermon series. And I want to encourage you to write that down. Whatever that fear is that you are wrestling with, that you feel like is exerting control into your life, into your heart, and your emotions, the thing that is, you, you don't want to deal with, and perhaps write that down. I'm going to give you a moment or two of some quiet reflection just to think, pray, and then uh, write that down. And then uh, we'll make a call for you all to come forward and provide you the opportunity, if you wish, to lay that card here in the manger, to surrender it to Christ. So I'm just going to give like a moment for us to just think, to kind of reflect a little bit, and then I'll make a call for us to come forward. Okay, I want to invite you, if you've written down fear that you've been able to identify, and you feel like you'd like to take an act or a moment to step forward and to do something physically to represent laying that down before Christ, of coming to a place of newer and greater surrender when it comes to that particular fear to perhaps offer it up as a prayer and say, Lord, I want to experience you and your power in the midst of this fear rather than the control of this fear. I'm going to invite you to stand up and to come forward and just come on right on down through the center row and place that card here in the manger. And then you can go off and file back around.
As you're taking your seats, I want to take a moment now that we've, we've come forward and we've laid these prayers. Um, I want us to take a moment and enter into, um, in, enter into prayer to pray over these fears. And I want us to come and with a heart and a desire to lay them in down and surrender. And so I've prepared a prayer for us to pray together. I would just ask, invite you to close your eyes, to pray however you feel comfortable. And I'll read for us this prayer as we offer them to the Lord. I'll give us a moment of some reflection. Lord Jesus, this morning we come filled with fears from within and without. When we look around, we can see more reasons than we count, can count to be fearful. There are those fears that lay ahead of us in the unknown. There are those fears that we can name and we feel like they stalk us every day. God, our hearts feel weighed down by these fears. Today, we want to come near to you. This morning, we want to come close and know you deeper. We want to know the presence of your spirit and your comfort. We want to lay down our illusion of control, and we want to lay down our presumptions. Lord, we lay down those things that we cannot ultimately control, and we trust that you are good, that you are a good father. Jesus, this morning, we lay down our fears. Lord, I ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would fill us with peace, Lord, give us a faith that is not easily shaken and draw us close to you. Lord, help us to know your strength. And Lord Jesus, bring us into a deeper level of surrender and relationship with you this morning. Amen. <clears throat>